بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين سيدنا محمد عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما We begin today by mentioning our uh, partners in partners in, in producing this podcast and this uh, live stream. Number one is Mecca Books, who will be having a special event in the coming weeks and days on the lives of certain people who in it began Islam in, in the American community or revived Islam in a certain way to a certain demographic of people. Their book is called Exemplars, and they're going to be having a, a number of speeches about them in the coming days uh, and weeks, so keep an eye out on that. So MeccaBooks.com is our first sponsor. Our second sponsor, if you want to become a nurse and you need someone to help you study for the exam, if you want to be an engineer, if you want to probably pretty much do everything except for city planning, they do not have tutoring for city planning uh, or urban planning. Professors1to1.com, go to them, you can... Uh, you have kids who need help with math, English. Their SAT classes are taught by kids. They have a condition. To teach this SAT class, you have to have had a perfect score, 1,600. I'm telling you, some serious, brainy kids are, are teaching these classes. Okay? That's number one. Number two. Number three, arcview.org. Our classes are we're finishing up the fall semester now. You can sign up anyway. You sign up. You got... Over 50 pre-recorded courses for all age groups. So sign up to arcview.org. And by the way, we are revamping the site. It's going to be so easy to use after that. The, the site revamp is going to be in, essentially all of the courses right away, right? That you're going to get to see all the courses right away. And, uh, and then the live ones will be uh, marked as well. So, and, the, and the link will be right there. It'll be so easy to use that we, inshallah, will find it um, something that you really benefit from. Number four, patreon.com backslash Safina Society. Patreon.com backslash Safina Society is uh, how you're going to give us help and support. You can be part of this. I mean, we don't need, in a sense, help and support is from Allah Ta'ala. But we like for you to be part of it. Right, and everyone to be part of it. So patreon.com uh, backslash Safina Society is uh, this, the way for you to be involved in that and get some of this reward. This work is happening, it's happening with, with you, without you, with me or without me. Right? It's happening either way. Right? And Allah has honored us to be a, a part of this team. Okay? And you can be part of the team with your sadaqat uh, at patreon.com backslash Safina Society. Uh, Reed is asking a question about ArcView, and the answer is yes. We have Quranic Arabic. We have a class that was taught by with Sarf and Nahu by Sheikh Osama, Palestinian. Reed is a Palestinian. I, I think, I'm guessing Reed is a Palestinian. And and by the way, Reed, I never got back to you to your to that counseling thing. Um, I like I love the program, and I just have to talk to some people about how it fits with us because we're doing a lot of things right now. But that's what, what we can talk about that offline. Secondly, we have uh, Mufti Niaz taught the Sarf. And that course is, is a one-year course. It's all pre-recorded. You could watch it at your own pace and go over the lessons and benefit. Okay, And the tenants are cooking again. Right? This time, it's bread. And I think the bread is ready. I want to stomp 
tell him the bread is ready. I can smell it slightly burning. Yeah, Mercedes, turn the oven off on the bread. All right, today we're talking about one of the most amazing shiuch in the history of Islam. I love this sheikh so much, and you'll see why I love him so much. And you're going to love him so much. And the ummah loves him so much, so that an academic, a historian, okay, said, he said, like, why do people love him so much? They keep writing about him, and they're writing essentially the same thing. And they keep, every century, this sheikh's dhikr, his mention, is revived. And he just doesn't understand why. And then he's an academic historian, so he doesn't really believe in, I don't think he's a Muslim either. He doesn't re- believe in what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, that when Allah loves a abd, he makes his remembrance flourish in the earth. And he makes qabul for him. Right? That's the meaning. When I say he makes his remembrance flourish, the qabul, the acceptance okay, of this person continues generation after generation, even though the direct benefit from him is not there, but is so beloved to Allah that the, the remembrance of his story is beloved by the people. Like, we just love to hear his story. And when I tell you his story, you're going to love it. All right, Ryan, let's put the first image on the, on the screen of the map. The first map, yeah. The first map I sent you in the email, right? I'm sorry, I see the screen, yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of a, like a two-second delay, but that's why we should probably open up this TV screen. But another time. The first, we talk about time and place. The century we're talking about is in the common era, 1100s. In the Hijri era, subtract 600 from that, we're talking about the 500s after the Hijra. What has just happened after the Hijra at this time? At this time, Andalusia, Muslim Spain, has just been settled down by the Murabitun. The Murabits have just recently, just now, at this time, 500s, pushed back the Christians. Okay, The Christians have been pushed back. Back up past that red line. You see that red line on the screen? The Christians have been pushed back there by one of the great empires of Islam, Al-Murabitun, also known as the Al-Muravids. In Latin, they write it Al-Muravids, Al-Murabitun. Yusuf ibn Tashfin, we have to study his biography too. He's the one. How did he do it? By another major event at the intellectual level that must be at the backdrop, must mention at the backdrop of our subject today, and that is Abu Hamd al-Ghazali. Abu Hamd al-Ghazali has just died. Abu Hamd al-Ghazali is linked to Andalusia and saving Islam in Andalusia. How? What, did he do it himself? No, but he was part of it. How? What happened was, the Christians come down and they conquer the Muslims. The Muslims are fighting amongst themselves. Allah Ta'ala never gives success to a, a, an army of disbelievers over the army of Muslims. Allah says it in the Quran. As a group, the non-believers will never defeat the mu'mineen if they're pious. But we see that the Christians are regularly cleaning up shop against these Muslims, mopping them up, destroying them. And that's because the Muslims of Andalusia have become so materialistic and they become essentially traitors and fasiqeen. Okay? Fasiqeen, nothing less than that, that betray one another for money, for approval. And so the Christians come up. Then they, they write down a letter to Yusuf ibn Tashfin, oh, help us, help us. 
and then he helps them. Okay? He comes up with his army, pushes the Christian back, and as a pious Muslim, goes home. He doesn't conquer. He did this once. He did this twice. On the third time, Abu Hamd al-Ghazali wrote the fatwa. Fatwa. You are obligated, and, and he didn't write it by himself. Al-Tusi wrote it, co-authored the fatwa with him, signed off on the fatwa with him, so that no one says only one person wrote the fatwa, no, two people. Obligating Yusuf ibn Tashfin by Sharia to remain the ruler of Andalusia, and any Muslim who stands in, who opposes him is permissible to him to fight him. That's the fatwa of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali and al-Tusi. And by that fatwa, Yusuf ibn Tashfin becomes the rightful ruler over Andalusia. That's the backdrop of our what we're about to talk about. The works of Ghazali had come into Andalusia, but they were rejected right away. The Madikiya for about 100 years, they reje- less than 100 years, rejected the works of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali. So now we're talking Seville. Look on the map here, and on the Instagram you see half of the map, but you see there Is- Ishbilia, which we now know as Seville. Our subject today was born on a... Um, in a hamlet of Seville, not in Seville itself. Seville itself, you know that it was the home of Ibn Arabi coming in the future. Okay, It's a port city. It's got everything there. But no, he was in a hamlet in Seville. What is a, a hamlet is not even a, a town. It's smaller than a town. It's a bunch of little farms, right? And little, you know, and they, they show in the old British movies, dirt, Everywhere it's just dirt roads and chickens crossing and a goat crossing and old lady, you know, making bread and a farmers. That's what where our subject was born. And he was born in a town in a farm that was a huge farm uh, for goats, herding goats. So he spent most of his time alone. It wasn't even like a hamlet where you could go meet the local butcher or the local grocer. You couldn't do that. It was all alone. And our subject's name is Shu'aib, and he goes by the nickname that he's been given, Abu Madian. Anyone whose name is Shu'aib, why do they give him the nickname Abu Madian? Where did the Prophet Shu'aib live? Midian, in Arabia, which is where Sayyidina Musa went and received the tutelage, it is said, from Sayyidina Shu'aib, who was very old and retiring. He received his tutelage from him, and he learned the Tawheed from him. And then he received his revelation after that. So Abu Madian meaning the person of Madian. Remember, Abu does not always mean father of. It could just mean possessor of or the associate of. So anything that you possess or your, is your quality is called an Abu. Okay, you can say Abu. So he's Abu Madian al-Ghawth. Why did they call him al-Ghawth? As you're going to see, he's the source of so much that is later to come in uh, Andalusia and al-Maghrib. Bilad al-Maghrib. Bilad al-Maghrib is from Tunisia, up to Espana. So that's, you see where our uh, 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 bi- biography today is taking place, South Andalusia in a little hamlet. All right, that's good enough for the map. Okay. All right. So that's Abu Madian. Now, how does he grow up? His mom dies. He doesn't even know his mom. He never knows his mom. His father dies when he's a young boy. And he's the youngest of a bunch of brothers. And they make him run the farm. They got to run the farm. And they make him herd the sheep. 
Now, as he's herding the sheep, there's a neighbor, an old man. And he hears that old man reciting the Qur'an. As this old man recites the Qur'an, he leaves the sheep and he goes and he listens. And the background of his herding the sheep is listening to, is hearing this Qur'an. And then he sees the man every once in a while get up, make wudu, wash himself, and pray. And he doesn't know how to do any of that. He doesn't know how to pray. He doesn't know how to do anything. Some people imagine all pre-modern Muslims knew everything. It's not the case. Here you are, not so long after the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, relatively, talking about 500 years after the Prophet, he doesn't know how to pray. Okay? He doesn't know how to do anything. And he starts getting upset. Okay? He starts getting upset. And he starts going to visit the man. And the man shows him how to make wudu and how to make salah. But the brothers, what about the animals? A, a fox or a wolf can come take the sheep. So he gets scolded. Every time he wanders off and he's not doing his job, he gets scolded. Okay? And every once in a while he runs and he goes to that old, old man, that neighbor, and the man teaches him a thing or two about how to pray. That's all the boy wants to do is learn how to pray. He's frustrated. He doesn't know how to read. He doesn't know how to do anything. But he loves it. See, the soul of the human being loves its maker. Simple as that. If you love your maker, you love the dhikr of your maker. You love everything with the nur of your maker upon it. You just love it. Okay? Finally, he decides one day he's going to run away. And he tries to run away from home, but he doesn't succeed. And his oldest brother catches him. His oldest brother has had it with him. Can't control this kid. So he, he takes a metal rod... Okay, and he goes to hit his younger brother and his younger brother takes up what? His wooden, his little wooden shepherd stick, right? The shepherd's hook is like a stick with a little hook at it and you use it to hurl, hurdle in the sheep. And he puts it up with one hand. So a metal, the metal rod being struck with two hands, it should either break the wooden stick or at least move it, right? When he puts it up and he does this, the metal rod hits the wooden stick and it bends. And the wooden stick doesn't move at all. They both look and they're in shock. Like when you're about to get hit and you don't get hit, you're in shock. When you're going to hit someone and it doesn't work out, you're in shock. So the brother, he looks back. And he starts to realize, oh, this boy's different. So he brings the boy in, Shoaib. And he sits and he's says this boy something special about him you can go he gives him permission to leave now here you have a boy he's leaving okay he goes to the old man and the old man says i don't know much about anything except how to pray and recite the quran keep going somewhere else and seek knowledge somewhere else and then a long journey begins for abu madian just to learn the deen i love these stories because it's someone learning from scratch Sometimes you see the son of the sheikh. Well, son of the sheikh, he's got such an advantage. Well, sometimes they do produce amazing shiuch, right? Or the whole village of shiuch, or a city. No, he's from a hamlet in Seville, Ishbilia. He knows nothing, so the first place he goes is Al-Yabitha or Ibiza. He doesn't know where he's going. Just goes somewhere. What is Ibiza? It is what people pronounce now as Ibiza. 
Ibiza, right? Which is like a party town in Portugal. But El Yabitha is what the Arab called it because it was dry. Didn't have water. So he goes there and he finds Abid. He finds a man, pitched a tent, has all the marks of zuhud upon him. And he says, oh man, can, can I l- sit and learn from you? And he says, yes. And he sits with him and he teaches him some basics of the Qur'an. And he starts reciting the Qur'an. He teaches him how to make wudu, how to make salah, perfect it. Now the other man had taught him the basics. He teaches him fatiha, he teaches him tawheed, he teaches him some basics. After about six months, he learned a lot. He said, okay, now you have to go. So he moves on. Then he moves to, he goes south of the border. He crosses the water. And he goes to Tunis. And there, he's at the beach of Tunis. He learns how to fish. And he gets a job as a fisherman. Right? And he can't find a sheikh. You think, people think that in the old days of Islam, there's shiuch everywhere. Right? It's not the case. He can't find anyone to study. And he asks a fisherman, teach me the deen. They said, we don't know anything. Right? And they don't even know where to send him. So he leaves them. He says, let me go to a big city. He goes to Morocco, Marrakesh. He gets to Marrakesh. He finds there the capital city of the Muslims of the South, Al-Murabitun. And he gets involved there and he signs up with the army. Do jihad fi sabilillah. And he does fight in the army. He fights some, some wars, some, some uprisings and rebellions and who knows what else he fights. And he fights in some wars. So now, um, oh, sorry, the Saraceno says that um, it belongs to Spain. It's not in Portugal. I, I, Ibiza is not in Portugal. I thought it was Portugal, but it belongs to Spain because I don't really, uh, I, don't, I don't have much experience with Ibiza, do, right? It's not, we're not really uh, have yachts and Instagram accounts to go to Ibiza and take pictures. So uh, ends up being he fights in the army. And he, and he does, and then he becomes a weaver. He works with weaving. So if you notice, what's happening with him here? He goes to seek knowledge. Allah teaches him a little bit. But Allah's also teaching him life experience. Travels there, becomes a fisherman. Travels back, goes into the army. Becomes a weaver. Finally, somebody gives him good advice. And he says, no, 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 no. Where you need to go is Fes. City of Fez. Pronounced in Arabic, Fes, and it means X. Okay? Fes, the city of Fes. Why does it mean, why is it called X? Probably because someone used an X early on, right? In the city of Fez. So we call it Fez in English, but it's Fes in Arabic. X. When he gets to Fes, he has a wonderful sheikh who has his own story. If you're any Moroccans out here today, do we have any Moroccans on um, Instagram or on uh, YouTube? Because, or anyone who's been to Morocco, if you went to, been to Morocco, you don't been to the city of Fez specific. You don't drink the tap water, right? What do you drink? The bottled water. What's the bottled water called? Sidi Harazim. The company of that tap water is called Sidi Harazim. Uh, the bottled water. Okay, Sidi Harazim is a special individual. In the history of Morocco. Why is that? When Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, his Ihya Ulum al-Din, arrived in Spain and Morocco, the Malikiyah loved and appreciated the Kalam, 
علم الكلام the Malikiyya are ashaira 100,000% but they did not like his works on tasawuf and they rejected it completely okay and from those who were rejecting it was Sidi Harazim and his actual name is Ali Hirzihim I've heard it pronounced Hirzihim Hirzihim and it got shortened to Harazim okay and he's known as later as Sidi Harazim okay now Ali Hirzihim has an amazing story you gotta listen to this story he's a faqih of the Qarawiyin he's a scholar and he is teaching people against okay, Ahya al-Umuddin. Do not study Ahya al-Umuddin. Stay away from Ahya al-Umuddin. Okay? He then sees himself in a dream. In this dream, two soldiers, they grab him. And a judge comes and he says, give him 80 lashes qiyasan ala had al-qadf. What does that mean? By analogy, using an analogy to the had of qadf, okay, which is 40 lashes. Okay, but I don't know why in this narration it says 80 lashes, whatever, maybe two doubling it, right? So he gets lashed in his dream. And after these lashes, now by the way, just to give you an idea and, and to repeat a point of sharia, the lashes in Islam cannot break bone or skin and cannot use the shoulder the whipper cannot use his shoulder. The, the jallad cannot use his shoulder like this or his hips. He may only use the, the, the torque of his elbow. So he may only do this. He may only do that. He cannot use his shoulder. He cannot turn his hips when he's striking. Okay? Just as a little fifth point. Okay? So they usually use a, a wide belt that's not so heavy that it would break bone and not thin enough to break skin and you can only use the torque of your elbow like this, okay? He gets his lashes. He says, what is this for? He said, because of the lies you say about Abu Hamad al-Ghazali. He wakes up, startled. He gets out of bed. Was this dream real? Was it from... He gets out of bed and lo and behold, the skin on his back is red and in pain. Right? He sees, he looks to the sides, he sees the redness and his back is in pain. And he's limping. It's as if the effect of the head is on him to show him this was a real dream, not a fake dream. He remains silent for a few days and then he purchased, he, he gets the Ahya Ulum din and he begins to study it. Now, he doesn't study it by himself. He goes to his uncle, Abu Muhammad Hirzihim. Okay? Who is Abu Muhammad Hirzihim? Abu Muhammad Hirzihim is a direct disciple of Abu Hamad al-Ghazali. So he goes to his uncle and he says, Uncle, I've repented. Now, he's, he's, a, he's a sheikh now, but his uncle's still alive. I've repented from what I was saying about Abu Hamad al-Ghazali. You want to know how Ihya Ulum al-Din got into uh, 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 Morocco and, and to the Malikiyah? It's the source right here. The big source. Now, it came, there was other people, like his uncle, but he's the big source. Ali Harazim. 
Okay? Also known as Sidi Harazim. He's the one who, when he accepted it, many of the fuqaha accepted it, and he had so many students, he was very popular as a sheikh. And he began teaching Ihya al-Muddin. When the jurists criticized him, he gave him the answers, and the satisfaction of those answers settled. When we say, Al-Ummah la tajtami'u ala dalal. I had a questioner the other day ask a very good question. You, you all say, the Ummah of Islam does not agree upon an error. How is it that we have, for example, for like 50 years, the Hanafis were Mu'tazilites? Or many of them, not all of them, of course. Many of them. How is it that the Madakiyah had rejected it, then they accepted it. When we say the Ummah does not agree upon error, it means that agreement does not settle and last and become a tradition. So they may have error, but it's temporary. And it was, we would say now, erroneous for the scholars to reject but it changed. Right? They were corrected. And in this case, they were corrected almost by Ilham, because a true vision like that is an ilham. Okay? And then we don't just act upon ilham. You have to, ilham may direct you somewhere, but you have to explain it. You have to come up with the evidence. Just like someone, scholar may come with ilham that a had, not ilham, instinct that a hadith is false. But you gotta prove why it's false. The instinct may initiate your investigation, but you must rationally and with scholarship prove your point. You cannot go, oh, scholars, accept Ihya Ulumuddin because I accept, because it's good. Because I have a dream that it's good. No, it's not acceptable. The dream may be the initiation of the investigation. Hey, Roy, any chance we could turn this AC on? Yeah. Okay, next point. Ali Harazim starts to teach our subject uh, Abu Madian he starts to teach him Al-Quran and Al-Fiqh and Sunan Al-Tirmidhi okay Sunan Al-Tirmidhi but in specific in specific Abu Madian is, is loves devotion and piety so much so okay he loves devotion and piety so much so that he studies all of the works of Ihya ul with Ali Harazim. And he studies Al-Ri'ayah by Al-Muhasibi. And he studies other works of Tasawwuf. And he studies Sunan Al-Tirmidhi. And he gets to... He, he's so poor, he can't afford the housing at Qarawiyin. So whenever he, he learns something, he wants to practice it right away. So he goes up to he goes up to uh, a, a hill and he finds an empty mosque in that hill and he would practice whatever he learned right, until he, he was satisfied and he got a fetch from it. A fetch meaning you practice it, practice it until Allah unveils for you one of the wisdoms of it. All right. And then he has this the sheikh he has karamats. He was such a zahid, okay, such a zahid, that there was a gazelle that used to come up to him. He says by his own words, a gazelle used to come up to him and keep him company in the mosque, in this, in this broken down, empty area. And one day, 
he came in and the gazelle stepped in, gave him a dirty look and left. Then he realized something in his state is different. Then he looked in his pocket and he found some money. He immediately gave it to the poor. He was such a zahid. And youth find it easy to have zahid because they don't have anything in the first place and they don't have expenses. If you see an adult who's a zahid, right, it's, it's not the norm. The zahid is either a young man or an old man. In the middle of life, you have too many expenses, right? And you have to live and you have things to deal with. He eventually has to go study fiqh, And he decides, ah, I want to be like these scholars. So he starts sitting in the lectures, and in his own words, sitting in the lectures of the fuqaha of al-qarawiyyin, and he doesn't understand a word. He can't get any of it. He cannot remember what they're saying. The technical terminology is way over his head. And he absorbs just enough to pass. So he goes back and he says, let me do what I do best, and that is devotion. So he finds another sheikh named Abu Ali Daqaq. Abu Ali Daqaq teaches him suluk. Now, there's scholarship in spirituality, which is learning about zuhud, learning about things, learning about dhikr, learning the devotions rationally. And then there's the application of it. And he learns that from Abu Ali Daqaq. Abu Ali Daqaq becomes like his sheikh. Yeah. And Abu, Abu Ali Daqaq, he talks up about a great sheikh that, that lives in the lands of the Berbers, far away, in the mountains, by the name of Abu Ya'za Yalanur. I mean, amazing name, right? So now we've talked about three names so far. We said the backdrop is Ghazali. And then Ali Hirzihim is his sheikh in, in Ulum. And Ali Hirzihim himself had changed had a change of heart by this vision and he went to his uncle and took back to Ghazali a complete chain to Ghazali okay Ghazali to Abu Muhammad Hirzihim to Ali Hirzihim to Abu Madin al-Ghawth our subject then after studying and finishing as much as he could of the outward sciences of Islam he goes to Abu Ali Daqaq who starts teaching him, this is how you have awrad, this is how you do dhikr, this is how, how it's done, tahajjud, fasting. Until, as we said, he would take the knowledge that he would learn from Abu Ali Daqaq, go up far away from everybody, practice it, and at that time, his karama at that time is even the animals that are afraid of humans would love him because he was so pure. Abu Ali Daqaq and the people of Fes would always mention this charismatic Berber, illiterate leader of a tribe full of, 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 of miracles karamat and you just want to be around him, his name is Abu Yazayal al-Nur so Abu Madian with a group of his uh, companions and peers and friends, they say let's go to Abu Yazayal al-Nur, they say let's go and they all go to Abu Ya'za Yalanur. Now in the world of Tasawuf, they say there's a sheikh of ta'lim. He educates you on the outward signs of sharia. There's a sheikh of tariq who teaches you how to worship Allah, how to do dhikr, etc. And he gives you the adhkar, he gives you the awrad. And then there's something called sheikh al-fatih. This is a common experience of the people. Not only experience, but the common experience. Sheikh al-fatih, with whom you spend very little time and your inner eye is opened. That's what they say. So, 
Sheikh al-Fatih for Abu Madian is Abu Ya'zi al-Nur. Now he goes there and he sees a big community of Berbers and he, they have a mosque and everyone's there at Abu Ya'za and he is a black Berber with white hair like this, a white beard like this, sits very strong personality like a king, but an ascetic king, Zahid king, complete Zuhud. And they're all poor, Berbers, mountain men. And he gets there after a long journey by foot and he sits for dinner, waiting for dinner, and they all sit for the dinner at Abu Yaza's, his like Zawiyah or the mosque that he has there. And he looks and he says, you. And he points to Abu Madian. He's like, wow, the sheikh is pointing at me, right? He says, Lebeik. He says, who gave you permission to eat? Don't eat, go sit by the wall. So he goes, sits in the corner after this long journey and he's watching all his companions eat and no food for him. Give him some water only to survive. Allah Adam, maybe what he do wrong. So he said, uh, 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 inner eye, I said. Uh, uh, Afro, man, Afro man, inner eye. Basira, the basira. The inner eye is by which we see things that are not visual. The meanings, the truths, the truths of things. Not like some kind of unseen world, but the truths. That's what I meant by basira, inner eye. Next, next morning, he's famished. Okay, wakes up in the morning, attends all the lessons, attends the dhikr, whatever he's doing. Now it's time for breakfast. Sit by the wall. Can't have breakfast. Time for dinner. Nah, he can barely keep his eyes open now. No food for you. Second day, no food. Give him some water. Third day, he attends all the lessons, all the azkar with Abu Yazayal al-Nur. Breakfast, no breakfast for you. By evening, he's khalas, finished. He is completely done. Okay? At dinner, he comes and he puts his eye, uh, he, he rubs his face on the pillow of the sheikh as an expression of like begging. I'm begging you. I'm dying, right? Of starvation. I just traveled. All, if you travel two hour drive, right, to some, somewhere, you want to eat, right? Imagine then they had to walk all this way. They didn't have animals, they were poor students. Then first night, second full day, third full day now, he rubs his face on where the sheikh is sitting as an expression of like, I'm begging you, I'm khalas, humbled myself completely to you, right? Now guess what happens? He picks his head up, he can't see. He's completely blind. He's completely blind. Now by the way, he really believes that Abu Yaza is a real sheikh and a man of Allah. Otherwise, if you went somewhere and you were denied to eat one night, wouldn't you leave? You would say, okay, yeah, he's a good sheikh and everything, but I need to eat too. He doesn't leave. He spent the first day, the second day, the third day. And on that third day, third night, he was dying for the food, rubbing his face into the pillow. He comes up blind. And, he's, and, and still the sheikh says nothing to him. Go sit at the corner. And he sits at the corner. Subhanallah. He then sleeps and he says, I didn't, I could not sleep all night. I just spent crying. What state am I in? What's happening? I, this is a man of Allah. What am, what's happening to me? Crying all night. The next morning, in front of everybody, 
Abu Yaza announces, bring me the boy. He's not a boy, but he's a youth, yani. Maybe at this point he's 18, 17, 18, 19. Bring him. In front of everybody, Abu Yaza places his right hand on his eyes, recites some dua, and his eyesight is back. Everyone is just in unbelievable. Karama. Then he places his hand on his chest. He does another recitation. And then a big smile comes on his face. And he said, This young man has a great shetan coming to him. He has a great affair awaiting him. And that's all the time he spent with the Sheikh. A couple days. He ate now. He ate his full. He uh, was happy now. Full of happiness. And all the people respected him and honored him after this incident in the, in the mosque. And he stayed some few days until Ali Hirzi, uh, 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 Abu Yaza said to him, it's time for you to get up and go. He said, when you get up and go, you're going to face some hardships. The first hardship you're going to face is that a wildcat, a lion, when, when the Arabs say a lion, it doesn't necessarily mean a lion with a mane. It could be like a bobcat. It could be some other mountain cat. A puma is going to come out to you. And when you see him, tell him, I just left Abu Yaza Yala Nur, and he says, get out of my way. <laughs> so he does. He leaves, and this event happens. So it's a confirmation that what just happened was not something crazy in his head. Right? Because sometimes the karamats and the ilhamat and all these wonderful, amazing things, when you come back to earth and live like a regular earthly life again, you may think, was I, was I like in temporary insanity was I drunk was I seeing things was something so you need confirmation that you were okay that that was all all real and he goes on and he's he's now commanded to start preaching so he starts preaching but his journey doesn't end there he makes hajj he decides to make hajj he's still young when he makes hajj the wisdom of this hajj is it will put him in the path and give him an ummawa'id legitimacy because who does he meet? None other than Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. Sayyidina al-Imam Abdul Qadir al-Jailani lives from 1078 to 1166. Abu Madian al-Ghawth lives from 1126 to 1198. So they live and he is now, Abdul Qadir al-Jailani is a famous sheikh. And Abu Madian is there, and Abdul Qadr al-Jailani sees the taqwa, sees the piety, sees the anwar, sees that his inner eye is open, his connection to Allah is strong, and he gives him the khirqa. He says, go and call people to Allah. So he now has the khirqa from, he has ijaz from Ali Hirzihim, the one who brought Ihya Ulumuddin and spread it in Morocco and amongst the Madikiyya, made it legitimate to the Madikiyya, who has a direct chain back to Ghazali. So, it's Ghazali, Abu Muhammad, then Ali, then Abu Madian. Only two links between him and Ghazali himself. Then he goes to Abu Ali Daqqaq and he learns the ways of the awrad and everything. Then he goes to Abu Ya'za Yala Nur and he gets a fatah, Rabbani, major fatah from him. Then he goes to Mecca and he gets the khirqa, which means the ijazat at-taslik. That he has permission now to take people along the spiritual path from none other than the great Abdul Qadir al-Jailani. Okay. 
from Mecca. When he comes back now, he's a little bit older now. He's more experienced. He has seen many, many shuyukh give him the ijazah. He now is no longer a wide-eyed youth who thinks he's nothing. He, know, he has a mission now. And he knows he's been given permission to this mission. Now when I say thinks he's nothing, yeah, all shuyukh are always humble, right? They're always humble. But sometimes you know, I don't have any qualifications, I can't do anything. But now he knows you can do this. You can go and preach and guide the people. Remember, when he sat in the lectures of the scholars, it was too technical for him, right? And yes, he learned what he needed to learn, okay? He learned what he needed to learn. Who's that? Who is that? Abu who? Abu Bakr who? Suraj al Abu Bakr Sheikh. Okay, good. Do we met before? Once, yeah. Okay, mashallah. Uh, he, he now starts preaching. And he doesn't stay in one place. He goes and he gives riveting talks. And his methodology was to speak in the language of the people. And he gives massive talks. Khutbas, speeches. He doesn't give technical lectures in fiqh, but he could teach people fiqh. He could teach people aqidah. He could teach people the Qur'an. If needed, he could teach. But his main method is the public preaching sessions. And he would, give, and he would do long du'a. And people would be weeping and they would transform. Wherever he went, people were transforming. And he did this for years. Up and down Morocco, Andalusia, over. Okay. And he, had, he went, went east and he had taken more ijazas for Ahiyah al Madin. And he came back. Take care. Assalamu And he came back. And he went to Algeria. Now, back in the day, there was no line between Morocco and Algeria. We have to remember who put these lines there, the French and the British, to divide up the Muslims. These lines should mean nothing to us. Line between Egypt and Sudan should mean nothing to you. If we were to ever have lines, our lines were quite similar to the Native American lines in the sense of this tribe lives here and this is the land that they take care of. Or a governor, for example. But the, to make a line and say these are Sudanese people, these are Egyptian people, and that's a line. Of course, it's one of these days, inshallah, at the end of time, we will see the erasing of all of these lines. They mean nothing to us. They go and they make the EU and unify themselves after they divide up the Ummah of Islam. So Algeria... Morocco, Tunisia, Libya, all the same. All Bilad al-Maghrib. Of course, they had different governors. but So he would go and travel everywhere preaching. And his preaching, let's talk a bit about his method. His method was, be honest with yourself and your emotions with Allah. I love this message. It's an amazing message. And you don't see a lot of people with this message. And he speaks against the rigidity of people. That say you have to only do... Th- the rigidity only comes from Allah. Right? Rigidity should only come from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Allah says halal and haram, that's where you have to be rigid. I'm, uh, we, we, must also, we have to embrace rigidity when Allah says rigidity. In that case, it's not rigidity, it's haq. The rigidity is relative. What human beings establish for other human beings. Where, uh, where did Allah bring this? Why should I... And you see some people, automatons, wallahi, schools, Islamic, 
Madaris, not Islamic schools like for K through 12. I'm talking about Madaris, Islamic seminaries, institutions. What have they succeeded in? Yes, there are many pious people, but also automatons. Wallahi al-Adim automatons. All dressed the same, talk the same, use the same language, have the same opinion. He was against this. You're not going to come near to Allah Ta'ala unless you're honest with yourself and open with your emotions within the halal. And this is something we glean from his poetry. His other teachings are, are the known teachings. Tawbah. Okay, Zuhd. Okay, uh, leaving off, this is very important, leaving off argumentation with other Muslims. Okay. This is very important too. Themmudhalimin. Blaming and hating oppressors. You have to blame them. You have to ver- verbally say something against them to stay away from them. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Don't be lenient. Don't relent to people who are publicly doing wrong or else when their punishment comes down, it's going to come on you. The fire is coming on them. You're soft with them. You're okay with them. There's an avenue between you and them. Of love, the fire will reach you. The harm of that fitna in this world will reach you. Don't be associated with them. Say something negative, clear. Make a line between. That's part of his teaching. We get his teaching from his poetry, not from his books. Someone asks here, does he write books? He doesn't have books. He has poetry. And that's where we get his teachings from. And he wanted the people to experience Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with genuine ibadah, not forced. So that's why he was all okay with people marrying, all okay with business. Not okay as in, in sharia, we don't need his, anyone's permission, the Prophet and made it a sunnah. But what we mean is that many people think this is not real tasawwuf. This is not real if I, if I marry and I get involved with a woman, I'm not really drawn near to Allah at this point. I'm losing. If I open a business and do something, I'm not close to Allah at this point. I'm like away from zuhud and I'm away from dhikr. He preached, he said no. He said, look what you're seeking in life and having an emotion towards. And go to Allah with that. Allah will guide you. SubhanAllah, this was a really guided imam. And if you have any doubts about his teachings, let's look at his shiyukh. Two names away from Ghazali, direct from Abdul Qadir al-Jaylani. And Abu Ali al-Daqaq and Abu Yazay al-Nun and Ali Harazm, people don't know them as much. But if, you're, if you know the history of Islam and al-Maghrib, you know these names, these, all three of these names. The man has five mammoth major scholars and awliya behind him. And this is his teaching. And that's why the people loved him. People loved him. Allah loved him. That's why we're talking about him here. Okay? We're talking about him here a thousand years. So in 2026, will be what? 900 years from his birth. Right? In 2026, 2026 is 900 years from his birth. Right? We, we don't even know how to do math anymore. Right? Am I right, Ryan? No, America. When I say 1126, I meant common era. Uh, CE. Right. Yeah. Yes, I see. 
900 years, right? So 2026, that is 900 years, and we're still talking about him. And had, like his teaching, even one historian was like, what did he teach? That was such a big deal. It's not, it had nothing to do with that. It's a soul that Allah loved. So Allah inspires the people to keep writing about him, and the scholars keep writing him. And Ibn Arabi, Ibn Arabi, calls him Shaykh al-Mashaykh. Now Ibn Arabi, People ask, was Ibn Arabi just calling him Sheikh al-Mashaykh because that was his title? So in society, he has to be polite? No, Ibn Arabi doesn't. Ha- He's not going to call someone Sheikh al-Mashaykh if he doesn't believe he is. So look at who is writing about this Sheikh. So this is his main teaching. And he goes on preaching everywhere he goes, traveling. And finally, he settles in Bujaya. Put up the second map if you have it. So we could take a look at where Bujaya is. Bujaya is in the northern coast of Algeria. And he retires in Bujaya, and he has a masjid, and he has a, a zawiya, and he teaches the people. But this time, he doesn't travel anymore. One time before that, in the middle of his life, he decided at some point, let me leave everything and worship Allah. Okay? And he had a companion, and they went and did it themse- together. Okay, we did it together. There's Bujaya. Now on Instagram you can't see it, but Bujaya is basically on the same line of latitude as Seville, but on the Algerian coast. Okay, so it's now it's pretty it's basically one of the northernmost in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. A gorgeous. See, this is why I love the history of the Muslims, especially the. Uh, worshippers of and the Sufiya of Al Maghrib. The topography is gorgeous. It's like Spain is there, the Mediterranean Sea, blue. The fish is amazing, right? It's such a good, there's beach towns. It's all beach towns, right? Tunis, right? Bijaya, Septa, Sayuta, Ibiza, all these beautiful places, right? They're all beach towns. All right, we can take the map down. So, in the middle of his career, he decided maybe the right thing to do is to cut off everyone and worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So him and a companion, they go to the mountains and in the caves and they start worshiping Allah together. After about two, three days, the, uh, his companion says, Sheikh, uh, I saw you in a dream. He said, what was the dream? He said, I saw you worshiping Allah in a cave and your face was like the moon. He said, MashaAllah, it's a wonderful dream. He said, then I saw you come down and preach to the people and give a speech to the people and your face was glowing like the sun. So Abu Madian realized this was a message from Allah that his ibadah was accepted but he's better off and he shines brighter when he's preaching to the people. And some people are like that. Some people, it's like a chemical. Right? Some chemicals you put it by itself is better. Others, you put it with other chemicals is better. has more impact. Right? So, he had greater impact and more nur and more kabul from Allah when he was preaching. Finally, in Bijaya, a really interesting incident occurred. Now, the Murabitun were gone, Al-Muahidun, new empire was there. And the king was Yaqub ibn Mansur. Okay. Yaqub ibn Mansur was king now of 
Spain, all of Al-Maghrib, Spain and Morocco, Algeria, all that land. He was the king of the Muwahid dynasty, Al-Mohad dynasty. And an incident occurs, okay, where he ends up, he had to kill his brother to become king. This happened all the time, right? It's haram, but it happens all the time. Two brothers, he killed his brother so that he has no competition for the throne. Then he feels terrible. Feels horrible. Okay. Then he ends up calling for Abu Madian. I need a sheikh to repent to. Like to, to guide me in repentance. But the message gets, he says, get me Abu Madian. But the, he doesn't say why at this point. But the word reaches Abu Madian. That, oh my gosh, the Khalifa wants you? Because the word was, Abu Madian was so popular that he could raise an army. That was the word. The word out in the, it, it, it was that he was so popular, if he wanted to, he could make a call for an army and overthrow the Al-Muhads. So these two things caught together, and the word was that Abu Madian is being called to get executed. That was the word. Later on, we know, no, no, he was calling him to repent. Either way, Abu Madian, at that time, was an old man. The governor of Bijaya comes in and he said, I am under strict orders to send you with soldiers to Marrakesh, Marrakesh, to the Khalifa. The people said, he can't even walk. Abu Madian is so old at this point. He can't even walk, right? Abu Madian says, oh people, calm down. I'll go with them. They are guiding me to my burial place. And those who want to see me will not see me. And those who uh, are, are where they are taking me will not arrive there. So it's as if he knew he's going to be buried. As he goes, he does in fact die along the way. But first, he's asking, every time they pass a town, they say, what's the name of this town? They tell him. Next town. Finally, he gets to a town called Al-Ubad. The worshippers. And his heart is filled. And he says, Oh Allah, this is a beautiful place. This name, is this is where I want to be buried. This is a beautiful resting spot. And he says to the people, Let us rest here for a day or two. They rest for a day or two, he doesn't wake up. He passes away. When he heard that that's the name, it entered his heart that this is the place where I'm going to die. And he dies there. And he says, send a message, before he died, he says, send a message to the Khalifa. Tell him that we're not going to meet. And they're not going to meet because you don't call, you're not a, a murderer who calls a great wali of Allah to your beck and call. So this meeting is not going to happen. But the intention is accepted. And he says, tell him that your tawbah will be if you follow al-mar'i. Sheikh Al-Mar'i. Mar'i is from a city called Al-Mar'iyah. And so the, sheikh, the, the king, he does seek out Al-Mar'i, which is one of his disciples, Abu Madian's disciples, and he makes tawbah at his hands. And he follows with the tawbah. Right? So it will not be accepted for you to, to at your beck and call, ask for one of the kibar al-awliya, but your, your intention is accepted. So you're not going to meet Abu Madian, and Abu Madian will 
refer you to somebody else and you're going to go make Toba at his hands. And that's what happened. And that's where he ends up dying. And uh, today on the map, it's next to uh, what's called Tilmisan or Tlemcen. You could see uh, uh, where Abu Banyan is buried. And he's considered Sheikh al-Shiyukh of Ahl al-Tasawuf of Bilad al-Maghrib. That's Abu Madian al-Ghoth. All right, now let's open it up to your comments and questions specifically on stories of the awliya, Abu Madian al-Ghoth. Russell Chowdhury says, I think Sultan Yaqub al-Mansur killed his brother. After that, the brother tried usurping him a couple times. Oh, so there was a reason to kill his brother, he says, because the brother had tried to usurp him a couple times. Okay, good, good to know. Right, And then he killed his brother, so he felt guilty about that. Have I written any books? Yeah, I have a book for the students. It's not like an official publication, but for the students who are asking, it's like a, not a draft, a little bit more than a draft. It's called Key to Paradise on Aqidah. And there's a couple other books coming out. Uh, but you can get that at safinapress.com. Okay, safinapress.com is where you can get that book. And it's called Key to Paradise. Uh, with our modern minds, we have uh, had, had to believe even though now we, it must be true. Uh, Adil Majid, was this a, 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 a... Maybe Was that second half of a question? Hmm. Okay. Turquoise Man says, I'm curious, was fiqh background for Barbary Corsairs? Is piracy allowed? Piracy was allowed against the Crusaders at the time. To, to be a pirate against the Crusaders is allowed. Okay, Adil says, "Can someone share the WhatsApp group chat for the summer in-person classes?" Yeah, email info at safinasided.org. Ryan will answer you. Inshallah. Um, Maliki Click is here. Who here thinks Maliki Click is ready to be his own gang leader? Yeah, a branch. Yeah, yesterday he handled. Uh, I forget. I forget what it was yesterday, but. He's a bodyguard. Yeah. And, and I think he may be ready for his own uh, little branch, right? His, his own operation. You learn so much when you have to lead, right? And you study, 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 and then you figure out you're going to lead your own way, right? Everyone's going to lead. When Allah makes them ready, deems them fit, then the circumstances will be put in place where they're going to lead, Right? And they're, they're going to lead um, in their own manner. But it will be with the right same spirit and the same teaching. But their own package. Okay, so um, Shah Nawaz. Some say Imam Ghazali left denying Mubtada after converting to the Sufi path. Is it correct? What is in Ihya Ulum din What is in his book on Aqidah? That's his belief. He didn't die negating all of that. But he died, what is true is he died seeing the, that the potential excess of ilm al-kalam. That's what he died upon. And that was way before he even passed away. Is that ilm al-kalam, it's a medicine only when it's needed. But that taqwa and drawing near to Allah Ta'ala is going to be by ibadah and dhikr. 
Ibadah and khidmah and, and all these things. Caitlin says, What are some ways Abu Madin advised to go to Allah with our emotions? Open your heart to Allah Ta'ala with what the emotion and don't don't hide it. We're not like the Christians who hide lust, hide desire for marriage, hide desire for companionship. We don't hide it. Go to Allah. Either Allah Ta'ala will will open an avenue for you or he will cure you from it if he doesn't want it for you. Go to Allah with all of your your whatever you want. You're not saying that this is the right way to be, but this is what I have right now. Then Allah Ta'ala will guide you. Oh Allah, guide me. If this is something I should remove from my heart, remove, help me remove it from my heart. If it's something good for me, grant it to me. And then by receiving it from Allah as a dua, through a dua, you draw near to Him that way. We draw near to Allah by ni'mah, by blessings that He gives us and protection that He gives us. We have to ask Allah protection from sicknesses, protection from what's going on in the crazy world that we live in. We can't give this lesson without mentioning at least the insanity of the shooting and how these parents must be feeling. We ask Allah Ta'ala never to test us with anything like this. You go, you drop off your baby to school, fourth grade, and then they call you, come to an auditorium. If your kid shows up, they're alive. If your kid doesn't show up, then we're sorry because it's a crime scene, so we closed it all off. All the living kids only come out, bust them to an auditorium. This is adab that has fallen on the nation. That adab of a type of sin, the reaction of that sin does not know guilty from innocent. Okay? There are certain things that you can do that are so bad, the, the blowback of that wrong action does not know guilty from innocent. You snap the light, okay, and cut the power from people. Who loses power? Everybody. All right, You blow something up, who suffers? Everyone. This nation and its U.S. Army has committed so many atrocities over the past 25, 30, 40, 50 years. And the entire basing of the nation has also atrocities on its hand. Finally, the blowback, these are, things are so bad, the blowback does not know innocent from guilty. It's almost as if you took in the, 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 the punishment and just sprinkled it on the... On, Rains on the guilty and on the innocent. It rains on the waterproof and not waterproof. Allah warns us, fear the sins that do not only affect the sinful. Allah tells you there are certain wrong actions that you can do. The blowback is not decipher innocent from guilty. It comes to everybody. It comes to the entire nation. All of these sins have come back against us and haunted people through this this crisis that has no solution, by the way. Yes, I know that gun control is a word to say. It's a word. That's all it is. You're not doing this because there's a black market, you fools. Unbelievable how naive people are. Okay, we need to have IDs checked, background checks, ban the sale of these guns. There are already 100 million semi-automatics roving around the nation. And the dark web is not so difficult to use. Any 16-year-old can, can access a gun and forget that the streets you go to, to Newark, New Jersey, you can get what you want. You pay the right price and you ask around for, for three days. I would bet you, I'm not going to say bet because that's a language that's not for us to use, but I would tell you that in two weeks, if I wanted a semi-automatic, and I know nobody in Newark, I don't know anybody, 
about this underground world. Give me two weeks. I'll have a semi-automatic right here. Forget background checks. Forget... Uh, yes, it may be a technically proceed, a, a good procedure to do. You have to do it, right? As a technical procedure. It's not a solution. You're not solving... The rest of the world all have guns, right? You go to Yemen, everyone's got a dagger and a gun. You don't see people just shooting up everyone. There's a mental element to this too. If you go and attacking the tool, is just like, you know, telling somebody who rams into people with a car, stop ban-, ban cars. In Toronto, didn't a guy do this a couple years ago? He took his car and he rammed it in. In South Carolina, I think it was South Carolina where they had that white supremacy march. Didn't that guy ram through a bunch of people with his car? Is banning cars a solution or is people's heads messed up? I believe it's both in a sense that, yes, I don't see, think that a citizen has any right to have a semi-automatic. Why do you need something to shh when you're a citizen? A rifle, fine. Right? For my house. But a semi, like something that sprays. All the guns that spray that are used in Iraq and Afghanistan. Why do you need them? As a citizen, you don't need them. You don't hunt with that. You don't fire at a, uh, an intruder with that. Who intrudes anyway these days? Is this the, you think like we're in the old days where some guy's going to come with a black uh, a robber and, and black and white stripes and try to rob your house? When does this happen, right? But anyway, fine. Maybe it happens. Keep one for the sake of it, okay? But no one needs any of these sprays. Nonetheless, that's not the solution. When you have a problem that has no solution, I can only consider this like a damnation, right? Because I'm telling you, this is a mental issue, and it's people's heads are wrong. Yeah, I agree when people say people shouldn't have to have semi-automatics and the right, they just don't want to think about it and they just say, oh, you're taking away your guns. And I don't think anyone's ever said taking away people's guns, but you don't need a sem- uh, something that sprays, right? No one needs that, okay? And so, so they're not honest about it. And because they're not honest about it, that element is not going to be solved. No legislation will be passed on that. And if legislation was passed on that, it still doesn't solve the problem. Because as I told you, I could go from the dark web or from Camden or Newark, maybe in less than two weeks, right? I can have a semi-automatic right in front of me here, right? And one of these guns that spray auto right are in front of me. It's not probably, it's the under, the black market of things, the under market, whatever you want to call it, Okay is probably bigger than the regular market. And because of that, the gun manufacturers will continue to manufacture them. Right? And they will continue to spread in the land. Right? So that's... When you have a problem, there's no solution. I really don't think that... I think that's... It's, it's, yeah. From our perspective, as Muslims, this must be adab and lana. Okay? So that uh, was the answer to the question of your emotions. You have to bring your actual feelings uh, to Allah Ta'ala and, and, and you have to be natural. You can't be, it's an automaton. Okay, I got into the deen, now I'm an automaton. Right? Before you say something, I have to think, should I laugh at it? Before I put something on, I have to see, is everyone else wearing it from the pious people? Right, so I could be like that. SubhanAllah, where's your, 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 your bottling up yourself? I don't believe in that. Nabila XHY says, 
how does the Shadli path fit into the Marabitun path that is popular in Al-Maghrib? Al-Shadliya is the methodology. Ghazali is the theory. If you notice, Ghazali was not a leader of disciples. He's an author of books. We, his book is the theory. Ashadri is the method. He was a leader of people. Ashadri was somebody who said, okay, and leave off many of the fringe groups that are called Shazli or whatever today, and they're really just odd, and there's no fiqh, and there's not even suluk, right? And there's a lot of these groups, and they've given a bad name to Ashadri. But in Islamic history, his way is the right way. His ways you have to have a job you have to have a family and you remember a lot and the emphasis is on the city muslim who interacts with the world lives with the world that's why i said kul kharuf wadhkur bil uluf what he means is that you have ni'ma because you have to have ni'ma it's in the world we're living in the city but remember allah much right that was the method of al-shadri negotiation with the nafs al-ghazali is theoretical it's not practical. Ghazali's method is absolutely crush your nafs. But Ashadi did not preach that. Why? He knows humans. Humans don't behave like this. You crush your nafs, you're going to get a blowback from your nafs. That's why reading Ghazali by itself may cause a person to be so wound up and so depriving of himself that wind up, you might burst. The Ashadi method is the right way. Negotiate with your nafs. Go easy with your nafs. Right? When Allah opens your heart, Go do a lot of dhikr. And only sometimes you force yourself. Sometimes you force yourself. It would be wonderful at some point to have a world tour that's broadcast live visiting the living shiyukh. One year. Imagine that. There's a lot of, world, there's a lot of tours I want to take. I would love to take a tour just the Masajid. U.S., Canada, Mexico, just driving in a car. You know how exhausting that would be? We would have to stop for like periods of time, right? But visiting the Masajid and doing dhikr and, and speaking in the Masajid and have it all streamed at all times, right? And then mapped out like a map with a little moving red dot. We're headed here and we're going to meet up at this halal restaurant, right? And then you just meet strangers, meet the ummah. It'd be a beautiful thing to do. And then another trip worldwide flying out to the awliya. This is a great use of being a millionaire. If, you're, if, if you be a millionaire or have a millionaire wants to spend on this and just traveling, sitting, meeting the shiuch and the salihin and the awliya of different countries. Could you give an example of how ilm al-kalam is used as a medicine compared to the past versus the present? In the present, I believe ilm al-kalam and I even talked to Dr. Hatim al-Hajj and he, conf- he agreed. I was su- not, sort of surprised. He said, we are, it is in dire need to study ilm al-kalam today. You have to study ilm al-kalam. Every one of us must study the basic fundamentals of logic and that's why that's what's in Key to Paradise is the fundamentals of ilm al-kalam. At Safina Press, Key to Paradise, that book is the fundamentals of what we mean by ilm al-kalam. It's essentially, there must be a logic to what is true and what makes sense. And that's how we respond to the atheists. And that's how also we answer the questions inside of our religion that could confuse people. And Allah himself calls these al-mutashabihat. 
and someone says the four imams hated ilm al-kalam they hated the kalam of the mu'tazila the only kalam that existed at that time was the mu'tazila you know what that statement is like it's like pulling out the fatwas from the ottoman empire or the ottoman era that say all of the scholars unanimously forbade wearing pants that's when pants was only worn by the colonizers and the enemies of Islam and the soldiers of the Europeans. And no Muslim ever wore pants. So the pants at that time was a symbol of the kuffar that are attacking us. Then it was haram to wear pants because that's, you wouldn't, today, can I wear a white shirt? Is it halal or haram to wear a white shirt with a blue stripe here, a blue stripe here and a blue star of David in the middle? Is it halal or haram? And a heart. It's haram, I'm telling you. Because you're insulting every Muslim who cares about Al-Quds. And you are wearing the flag of the Valimin, of the oppressor. But go back 200 years and ask a Mufti, can I wear this shirt? He said, yeah, because it doesn't symbolize that. So the initial kalam was the kalam of the Mu'tazilites that led people astray. But when the scholars saw Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari and Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, and they saw that they had employed the same kalam to defend Al-Sunnah. They adopted that aqidah. The Shafi'iyah and the Malikiyah adopted Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari's system. And the Ahnaf adopted Abu Mansur al-Matwidi's system. So that's why we have that. Okay. Omar Mufti, more guns than population? Probably, right? There's probably more guns than, than, than the population itself. Uh, Omar Mufti says, could we use the same adab? Could we say the same adab for our maize, uh, malaise for our maize for Muslims suffering around the world? Like the Uyghur Muslim? Yes. Yes, the, the, the Muslims for centuries, they left off the struggle and now look what happened. Okay. Nabil XHY says, how did the scholars balance family time seeking knowledge and dawah? And how did they manage financially to travel often? The answer to that is that every generation, now that the world is changing so quickly, every generation is differing, right? It used to be back in the day, it was in, in a, a, a shame and a selling of the deen for a scholar to give a speech and then re- receive a cash remuneration, an honorarium. Time has passed, and that has that nobody says that anymore. In fact, they, it's, it becomes a necessity. In the past, to, for the scholar to be employed, taking money to teach fiqh, was considered lack of sincerity. But then they realized he either does this full time or he works full time. And if he works, he can't teach. If he teaches, he can't provide for his family. So they realize this is necessary. So things are always changing. Family time and teaching the deen should never separate. Why? Your family is the first students that you have. Your family are your first disciples. Your family is the community. Serving the community or serving your family? Wait, isn't my family from the ummah? Right? Who is the first person that I'm going to be asked about? Okay, every one of us will be asked about your kids first, 
Every sheikh, Allah will ask him, where is your son? Where is your daughter? What, what are you worried about people who live across the town for? Right? What are you worried about them for when your own son and daughter are lost? So when he deals with them, he learns human nature. He learns so much, so he's benefiting. Every mom and dad is benefiting when they're raising their kids. You are learning the future. You're learning the present and the future because we could very easily be lost in the past. Like all my memories of certain things are of the past. Like leisure, entertainment, thing, uh, uh, all these things for me, the youthful things, they're in the past. But today's stuff, right, the slang, cap, and all this nonsense words, right, to me is nonsense, but I know it at least, right? All these, so that allows you to continue to be uh, relevant with the people that you're going to spread. So the way I look at it, the, the more a person spends, to, spends time and does his job as Allah sends him with his own kids, the more he can benefit other people. And you have, there's a community, you, the, your family's part of that community. So I would say that everyone's going to need different amounts of time with their family. But whatever it is, that's what you have to spend. Okay. Would you recommend reading the book Fatih Rabbani by Abdul Qadir Jilani? Yes. May, uh, stranger 14, may Allah Ta'ala give you ijabah, a dua. And we ask Allah Ta'ala for a woman in Egypt. Her name is Amira. She died at the age of 44 recently. And uh, she had a coma and then she passed away. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give her genital firdaus and to make matters easy for her family. We ask Allah ta'ala to make her grave a place of expanse and not a place of tightness. And we ask Allah ta'ala to replace for her an abode better than this abode and company better than the company of this world and make her enter genital firdaus as a, a shaheed from her sickness. And we ask Allah ta'ala to have removed all of her sins with that sickness and we ask Allah Ta'ala to give her family sabr and to unify them all in Jannat al-Firdaus. Ma'an nabiyin wa siddiqeen wa shuhada. Ameen. Can you talk about your problems with people you trust? Does that negate sabr? No, it does not negate sabr. It, neg- it means that the sabr is not uh, polished, but you still have sabr. Sabrun jameel is that you never complain to the people, but complaining to the people does not deny sabr. Denying Sabr is when you commit sins because of rest. Oz is here. Take the mic, Oz, and get involved. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu rahmatullah. Piracy for civilian ships that belong to the Crusaders. That's a good question, and the answer to that is Allah Adam. I can't remember what the ruling on that is. Back in the old days, can they um, raid ships that belonged to the Christian people? Allah Adam. I think back in the old days, that entire nation is at war with our entire nation. All of them are enemies. That's probably how it used to be in the old days. The only difference was who you worked for. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. call a pirate the person who works for another country. Yeah. And you call like a sailor yeah. or a part of the navy if they're part of your country. Yeah. But that, that was just how it worked at that yeah. time. You want me to help you push this back? Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with it. It keeps coming up for some reason. going to nail it in. Um, Eminem says, yesterday you claimed that a solution to school shootings is spirituality. Uh, No, we were saying that there are solutions to this problem that are outside of Islam per se. Yeah, I I do believe that, right? Not that people don't need Islam and that Islam is not true. But 
when you see people who have strong family connection and some kind of world bigger than them, like Christianity even, right? Judaism. And not to say that it's true, but some things in it are true and we, they benefit from that function, from that element of it, right? Proof being, you rarely see a wholesome Christian boy go do shootings, right? Wholesome, I meaning like in the cultural sense. That he has a nice family, blah, blah, blah. That sense. We know that's not true. That the Trinity is not true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that none of that religious life has any benefits. So sometimes worldly things are the solution to worldly problems. Okay, And it's not just all the time that Islam is the only solution. So then why, is, why aren't there shootings like this in South America? Why don't we hear about shootings like this in places like uh, Argentina or a place like Mexico? Place uh, plenty of guns in Mexico, right? But they have strong family connections, right? Uh, so that does not take away anything from the need for dawah or the truth of Islam, of course, right? We, but it does mean that um, uh, certain basic worldly things are solutions to other worldly problems. What was the religious difference, says Turquoise Man, between the Al Murabits and the Al Muwahids? The Murabits were strict fiqh. Fiqh, right? Aqidah and fiqh. And it got very dry. And the Muwahidun, they went on and they took on the works of Al-Ghazali in Kalam. And they had some things in their doctrine which wasn't exactly acceptable. But they, the Muwahidun were preaching that these Murabitun have become a bunch of dry jurists. Dry fuqaha. Like that. And they brought in some kalami things, and I don't know if they accepted the tasawwuf of Ghazali or not. We'd have to go and review the doctrines. Why don't you pick up for us the doctrines of the Muwahideen if you're interested? Is, is this a recent? Al, the Al Mohads. No, Al Mohad dynasty. Can you talk about the role of the Sanusi tariqa during in colonialism? Yes, inshallah, one day we'll talk about it. Why did Moroccan lingo call everyone Sidi? And their Jalaba become the default for neo-traditional Western Muslims? Better than the Red Pizza joint tablecloth gang. Um, I'll tell you why. Because in the 70s, the place to be was Tangiers. The hippies all went to Tangiers. A group of people, Allah guided them to Islam. And their first exposure to Islam, and only exposure maybe, was the Moroccans, right? And they came back and some of them learned a lot of knowledge and benefited the people and had a charisma. And there's a charm to Morocco. There's a whole culture to Morocco that gets your attention, right? It's an attention-getting thing, right? Uh, uh, it's beautiful, right? Everything about them is colorful, beautiful. And so that spread amongst people. And a lot of people found that more attractive than what was happening in the Eastern Arab world. Right? Which is not as attractive. Right? And, and drowning in political problems and political Islamic groups. And they found, the Westerner found that not necessary for them. Not something useful to them. But what, what were we here in the West? We suffer from materialism. Right? So when they came back with spirituality is more important to us than coming back with political uh, ideologies for political problems that didn't relate to a regular American kid. That's one of the reasons why it spread. Morocco, 
What's like, that? About Morocco, like, yeah. I know I know probably, like, four converts that, like, either they took their shahada in Morocco, yep. on a trip there, mm-hmm. or, like, right when they became Muslim, they went straight to Morocco, like, yeah. right after. I mean, it's just such like a, a place of, it's such a place you get addicted to it, uh-huh. right? And the Moroccan uh, is, by nature, live and let live, right? By nature, they accept oddities. By nature, they have they have a tolerance for anyone with a little bit of a, a odd behavior. They tolerate it, right? They don't, uh, unlike the Syrians, regimented, formalized. I think both of them have their amazing temperaments that suit different people in different times. JJ says, if one practice on their family to try to spread the deen in their household and has realized people do not want to talk about the deen but only wealth, is that bad conclusion or correct? Well, yeah, if you stay away from them a little bit, if they're not receptive, try again later. Wait, because people are not static. People will go through diseases, poverty, changes, old age, they will change. So go back to them. And one thing I learned about this type of thing is yeah. like, if somebody's like stubborn about like not opening up, it's just like let them bake in like the yeah how bad that is. That's good. And it, eventually you just have to open up. Exactly. Like, because let them hit a dead end with that. Yeah. Or let rock them bottom. Yeah, let them hit rock bottom or let them see the disease that this is going to bring back. Yeah. Right? You going to go down this route? Yeah, okay. You'll see. In 5 years you got monkeypox. Then you come crying, right? Or <laughs> something similar to that. You're going to you're going to have a problem. Like anytime you see a people an arrogant click happens many times in our communities. An arrogant clique, a group of people that they're, they're friends, but they're not on the right track. Just wait, they're going to have a fallout with each other. Guaranteed. Like if they're arrogant or they're doing something haram together, they will have a fallout, right? And then you'll pick up the, uh, the pieces. You'll be there to pick up the pieces. Why are most tariqas connected to Sayyidina Ali? It is said, Wallahu ta'ala alam, that there are 40 silsilas in Tasuluk, Tasawuf. 39 to Sayyidina Ali, one from Abu Bakr Siddiq, which is the Naqsubandeh. Are there any reports, Abdul Hadi says, of awliya who gained wilaya, lost wilaya, then gained did wilaya again? Allahu alam, but we did see this, the story of... Now, a wali, we don't know this, but a wali can... Uh, Make fall into sins, but we did see the story of that major Hanafi scholar who fell into ridda at a period of time. It was a murtad into Christianity in order to marry a woman, and Allah brought him out of it. Um, the Ashari's yeah. right. You, t- you taught us that the actions are different than like the person themselves, right? And we gain the actions over time. So Correct. like the actions may be displeasure, like yeah. may earn a lot of displeasure, but the person, Allah knows their end state. Correct. Right? Uh, a wali, we say, can fall out, uh, can make mistakes with his actions. But he will not, if he exits the aqidah, ahl sunnah let alone murtad, then we say yes, that's not a wali. Why? We must say that, so that people don't try to take, seek guidance from mubtadiyah, right? And murtaddin. So if you see a man and he commits a major sin, yes, he still may be, but the key is the wali will make tawbah right away. He will not persist upon it nor fall into the fisk of aqidah. Hajra, can we ask related, non-related? All right, ask your question. If it's closely related, we'll answer it. A lot of Arabs wear the pizza. Oh, he's talking about that. The, the shamakh. Yeah, yeah. 
That's what he's... Mahmoud is talking... <laughs> clarified the pizza cloth people. I guess he means the, the you know, those types of Salafis. But he's... Uh, Mahmoud is saying a lot of Arabs wear that, not just Wahhabis. In Jordan, you you do wear that, right? Yeah. yeah, they do. And he says Morocco did and went and made peace with Israel. So... I mean, as an as at, for that, we say we have to denounce that. Could we apply the understanding? Nabila XHY says, the adab of gangsterism as well. Yeah, and it is a problem. It it really is a problem because second generation Muslims who are um, living in this those inner cities, this there there are no barriers between them and their. The, the, the culture around them. Whereas, for example, me and Oz and stuff, maybe not in central Jersey because we have so much diversity. In, you know that we're the most diverse town in the most diverse uh, 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 county. Middlesex County is the most diverse. Diverse meaning many different groups. Like Patterson, it's not diverse. There's tons of Palestinians, yes, right? But not diverse. We have like a perfect diversity here, Right? Where it's like 25% white, 25% black, 25% Spanish, Hispanic, and 25% a mix between Indians and other groups. It's like 20, and Chinese and other groups. Like tw- perfect numbers almost. And North Brunswick is the most diverse of that. So for us, being dark and being brown or whatever, Arab, Pakistani, Sudani, may not be an issue. But in other parts of town, there's a cultural barrier between the, peop- the, the, the Desi and Arab kids and others, right? And that is, it helps them sort of not be pulled into these environments. Whereas in the cities where some of these people converted to Islam and they stayed in areas, that's not there. Like your son being Abdul Karim or whoever it is, and he's African American, there's no barrier between him and the rest of that community. And so I remember them complaining to me, and uh, one of the sisters, she was a convert. She was full of zeal, right? You know that convert zeal never left her, right? But she's looking at her grandkids now, and she's like, they're getting pulled in to the, by the, the uh, surrounding community, right? And they're not really into her Islam, right? And it's really, but some of these sisters are so strong. They're, they don't give in, right? They're like, listen. I'm not going to bend because you're not interested in Islam. And they don't bend, right? Now, in the sense that many parents, and I'll tell you, I've seen this from many Arab parents, they'll bend with their kids. Kid lose interest in Islam, is so afraid to lose his kid, he'll bend with his kid, right? They'll go astray with his kid. And why is this not a strange phenomenon? What's the story in Surah Al-Kaf? Isn't the whole point of Surah Al-Kaf the idea that parents had a child and Allah knew that this kid is going to go astray and the parents will follow the kid. It happens in some societies. They follow the kid. But this, these sisters in New Haven, Connecticut, to me, they're beacons of nur and examples of Islam. They do not care. They're all the disciples of Imam Zayd Shakir. Mm. Right? Yeah. And so their Islam is balanced. They're not Wahhabis. It's a balanced deen. Right? What Imam Zayd Shakir brought was a balanced deen. And you see that in them. And they didn't waver. And that's the sign that this deen is correct. Like that deen is correct. They didn't waver and they weren't so harsh that they pushed their family out. But they weren't so soft that their, their non-religious or non-interested family members 
watered them down. They didn't water them down, not one bit. Can a Hanafi boy ma marry a Maliki girl? Yes. <laughs> all, madhabs can marry one another. No problem at all. No problem at all. How do we make da'wah to our family if we're supposed to obey our elders? You don't have to obey them in everything if it's haram. But, and you're not supposed to necessarily uh, command right and forbid wrong to your parents. But you give your family, a da'wah to your elders is not your concern. Give da'wah to your peers. Yes, Sayyidina Ibrahim did give da'wah to his father. That was the da'wah from, from shirk to iman. That you should probably do. But your parent, your dad smokes. Your mom listens to Umm Kalzon. Okay. Uh, you know Umm Kalzon? Okay. So I, don't, I refuse to call her Umm Kalzon because that's the daughter of the Prophet. She's the legend of Egypt. And you see Umm Kalzon. Uh, and she's such a big deal. And then you see her. She's a big grandma with glasses like this from the 50s. She's a heavy set woman. And the Egyptians, until today, they die to listen to her. And if you say something about her, you've said something about us like a Sahabi. Right? Uh, what about the other lady, Fairuz? Uh, Fairuz, yeah, she's big. Is she, in, is she Egyptian or some, somewhere else? Umm Kalzon is like the Michael, she's like uh, the, the Elizabeth Taylor. I don't know, is it Elizabeth? I don't know who Elizabeth Taylor is. Yeah, she's like an actress. But she was like the top of the line. Nobody comes near Umm Kalzon. Yeah. And then where's, do you know where Fairuz is from? Like Fairuz, I think, is a, is she Egyptian or Jordanian? One oh, okay. of, she, but she's uh, not like that. Fairuz is Egyptian. Egyptian. Mm, okay. She's number two. Fairuz would be like number two. Mm. Abdul Halim Haf is like the Michael Jackson of, uh, he's like the first boy band of the Arabs, mm -hmm. right? But he's a solo guy, right? Elvis. Uh, he's the Elvis yes. of the Egyptians. Yeah. And he died young. Is Israel-Palestine mentioned in the Qur'an? Uh, we can talk about that. It is in Surah Al-Isra mentioned. Let's go to YouTube. Check how we're doing. I'm not here 9-11. Why so many people of Tasawwuf in the middle, these orders in the middle period, so militarized? They were militarized. They, they simply formed the, uh, formed in the, in the, in the nature of the needs of the time. So, when there was no problem, okay, uh, when there was no problem in the Ummah, the people of Tasawwuf left. They didn't even teach, right? They didn't even do da'wah because there was no need. Later on, when there were city people and there were the, the Ummah already had their own militaries, all they did was teach and feed the poor, right? So, they, the orders take on the mold of the, what the society needs. That's why. Saracen says, it might be true about the pizza cloth, but what do we call it? The hatta? Shmagha. Shmagha? Okay. But you can't deny that the red-white shmagh is definitely associated with the reform. Yeah, it is associated with them, but it is true that there are some good salihin who wear the shmagh. Uh, is smoking haram in the Madiki Methodist haram? Fairuz was Lebanese. Mara knows. Mm -hmm. She would know. Um, Lebanese connection there. She's like the Kobe Bryant. She's like the number two, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's the number two. She's not going to come close, though. And so much of the Arab entertainment has been corrupted by the Christian Lebanese. 
Wallahi al-Azim, the Christian Lebanese have corrupted the Egyptians and from the Egyptians, all the Arabs, because the Christian Lebanese, they're all, like, they're went all into cinema, right? Mm. And music and everything. And even some of them were Druze. Yeah. Like far off. Syrian Druze. Is Lebanon also considered part of the Shem? Lebanon is Shem, yeah. All the shudder of the cinema and stuff, Lebanese, <laughs> right? And then the Egyptians bought into it. Abdul Ghani al-Mu'allim says, do I need permission to, as an adult to go and study in Mauritania? You don't need, you don't need uh, permission, but you're not allowed to really upset your parents too much. You're not allowed to upset your parents, right? That's one thing. But you don't need permission. If their upsetness is something you could deal with later, like it'll, they'll be fine. They're a little bit upset, but they'll be fine. But uh, an adult male does not need permission anymore. Once you can earn your own way, it's not about permission. It's about not upsetting your parents. We have to make that clear because there is a degree of, there's a balance that has to be made. Okay. Mahmoud Muhyiddin, we as Muslims should never negatively generalize people due to their dress. Correct. Yes. So he says Lebanon is like a stepchild to the Shem, not the real thing. <laughs> The, the, the scholars, the people of Damascus say when the prophet talks about Shem, he means Damascus. Muna says, our teachers say that the lineage of the prophet وسلم, is protected from shirk. They say that the ayah refers to his father Azar, who was one of his uncles. That's correct. The direct lineage of the fathers of the prophet وسلم, and the mothers, none of them committed shirk. And Azar is his ab father figure. It's his uncle. Azar's his uncle. All the lineages say this. Is it haram to cut ties with father if he is emotionally, verbally, physically abusive? It is haram to commit to, to cut ties, but it is halal to avoid harm. And you find the path in the middle. Cutting ties, haram. Avoiding harm, halal. You find your, your own way in the middle. All right, we have to stop here. And inshallah ta'ala... All right. Last question. AA says, is there ijma' of the Sufi? No. Ijma' is by the ulama of aqeedah and fiqh and usul. If we're going to look at ijma', there, and every Sunni Sufi that is valid to take anything from, he must be a alim in the furu'. He has to know his religion. He has to know his aqeedah. Otherwise, you cannot take from him. He has to know enough not to go astray. Does he have to know enough to give fatwa? No. Does he have to know enough to take you from zero to like uh, high text? No. He has to know enough not to go astray in his ibadah. Because you can go astray in ibadah. And, and many, many of these Sufiya, may Allah forgive us and, and everybody, but they've done certain things that thinking it's very good for their time, it ends up blowing back in the face of the entire group. And those are the things that uh, are not good and ended up causing uh, problems for the ummah. All right. And for the people of Tasawwuf in general. Some of them are masters too, right? Like Habib Omar, he would be considered at the top of the Shafi'i Madhab, right? Oh, Habib Omar is, is one of the sources of the Shafi'i Madhab, right. no doubt about or that. Or like Sheikh Muhammad Yaqubi. Sheikh Muhammad Yaqubi in the Hanafi Madhab. Right. Yeah, no doubt about that. And Kalam too. Mm-hmm. Both of them in Kalam, Ilm al-Kalam. And um, some of them in Hadith and Quran. So... All right, folks, Jazakumullah khairan. All right, final question. Hajra. 
says, you mentioned that when making dua and it's a long wait, look at the value of what you're asking. Yes, entice yourself. How do I reconcile with kafirs, ghafil Muslims being given the same without a wait and without asking? Excellent question. When you're given something through dua versus not through dua, what's the difference? When you're given something through dua, it is as if Allah is saying, I'm not only going to give you this, I'm going to purify you. I'm going to strengthen your iman. I'm going to strengthen your character. I'm going to give you a precursor of years to look forward to this so that when you receive it, you never let it go. And none of it will harm you. Just like the difference between someone who gets rich versus someone who's born rich. Are they the same? The one who gets rich, how much has he learned? on the path to getting rich and he can now make somebody else rich I could teach you the ways to get rich but you're just born rich you could lose the money right you won't appreciate the money someone born rich loses his money he can't get it back someone who makes his his wealth from zero he could lose it all tomorrow and he can make it right back because he has learned the path of wealth likewise you're learning the path to Allah Ta'ala through your dua you're going to be so transformed through your years of sabr and years of dua. Sabr would dua. And I'm telling you, I spoke to this person. He was making dua 15 years for something. And it's not like he received a sign he's going to get it. No. He just, he waited 15 years for something. And then he got it. مفتاح باب رحمة الله عز ما في علم الله صلاة وسلاما دائمين بدوام ملك الله وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم صل وسلم بارك على سيد محمد مفتاح باب رحمة الله عدد ما في علم الله صلاة وسلاما دائمين بدوام ملك الله وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليم اللهم صل وسلم بارك على سيدنا محمد مفتاح باب رحمة الله عدد ما في علم الله صلاة وسلاما دائمين بدوام ملك الله وعلى آله وصحبه عدد كل ذرة ألف مرة يا مجيب يا مجيب يا مجيب أجب دعاءنا وألهمنا رشدنا وألهمنا الدعاء الذي تريده لنا اللهم ألهمنا رشدنا اللهم أرينا الحق حقا ورزقنا اتباعه وأرينا الباطل باطلا ورزقنا اجتنابه We ask Allah to show us the truth as truth and make us let us follow it and show us falsehood as falsehood and let us avoid it وصلى الله وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم الحمد لله رب العالمين